Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. The story of the temptation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 is actually uh, obviously a very foundational story. It comes very early in the biblical account, and it lays down some of the most important ideas that the rest of Scripture unfolds. And no more important idea comes at the very earliest part of the Bible than the explanation in a narrative of why the world is what it is, why it's a chaotic place, why it's a place of evil, death, and sin. And it does connect greatly, I think, to the story of Jesus, not least to his own encounter with the evil one just after his baptism. But I want to kind of go back to Genesis chapter 3, and I want to suggest perhaps a different way of thinking about what's going on in that story. Different, at least from my perspective, growing up in an evangelical church largely influenced by the Western Christian tradition. Uh, I've looked at that account in very specific ways until only very recently. And what I want to suggest to you is, is I've sort of begun to unpack this fresh way of looking at the temptation. It has so amazingly drawn me to the God of the story of the Bible. And it, it is at the same time made the work of Jesus all the more remarkable and helped me understand the significance of Jesus in a new way. When I look at Genesis chapter 3 and I look at this story of the temptation of Adam and Eve here, I'm looking at it these days with empathy and not with condemnation or contempt. You see, I grew up thinking that this was the story where these human beings who should have known better failed and because of that failure, because of their sort of rebellion based on what they knew was the right thing to do, uh, the devastation of that we're living with today. Now, I still believe that, don't get me wrong. But I want to change the way we think about these two individuals. You see, that understanding, that contemptuous understanding of Adam and Eve, I think comes from 
what I would call the Western Christian tradition, the one that sort of has its sort of patron saint Augustine, who looked at these two people as fully formed moral agents who should have known better. But I want to suggest to you that there's another way of looking at this story. And it's as ancient and perhaps even more ancient than even that reading. And that comes from the Eastern tradition. You see, uh, in the account of God's creation of Adam and Eve back in chapter 1, God says to himself in this Trinitarian presence, let's make humans in our image and our likeness. And in the Eastern church, those concepts of image and likeness are played off of one another in a rather interesting way. What they teach, and this comes from Irenaeus, for example, as one of the Greek fathers. He says that God made us in his image and we were to develop into his likeness. That sort of began to make me curious about what was going on in that story. And I began to look at that story, and now I'm a, I'm a father. I have twins, actually, a daughter and a son. And, and I'm looking at this as a father looks at children and when I'm looking at the narrative, I, I sort of see this uh, phenomenon of parenting. And, and as I sort of think about this with respect to the Eastern tradition, I, I look at Adam and Eve today not as morally formed adults who should have known better, like a 25-year-old, but I'm looking at them as like 12-year-olds. 12-year-olds who, of course, were told by God to live a certain way, but they had no idea the consequences no sense of, of the significance of their actions. It was impossible for them too. They had no experience of evil. They only knew the good. And so here comes this serpent who the text says was more crafty than any of the other creatures the Lord God had made. And they come, he comes to them with a temptation. A temptation that they had no real ability to understand. They were no match for that tempter. And so what did they do? The serpent offered them wisdom, but it was, it was really foolishness dressed up as wisdom. You know, it reminds me, I think, in fact, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 is sort of a, a midrash, a commentary on this passage where the, the text says, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but Foolishness leads to folly. And I see that, that what Satan was offering them, what the, the tempter was offering them, was the wisdom of God without the fear of God. And they took it. And they took it. And that's rebellion, no doubt about it. But almost as worse, or almost worse than that, I think, is, the, is not just the fall, but the flight. You see... In the next few verses, verses 8 through 13, Adam and Eve don't only fall and rebel, but then they flee from God. They flee from God. And I almost wonder if the second sin is actually worse than the first. It's sort of like when I was 10 years old, I, I had this aquarium up in my bedroom, and we lived on a two-story uh, a house in a two-story house, and and I was trying to clean it out. So I took the I took the aquarium and I and I filled it up with water. And as I was walking back to my room, I dropped it and and like you know 
three gallons of water spilled on my floor. I, I knew I shouldn't have been doing that. I was told by my parents not to play around with my fishbowl because, of course, something bad would happen. But instead of going to my parents and sort of emitting it and, and seeking their help, seeking the wisdom that they would have offered to clean that mess, I go to my sister, who's a couple years older than me, to try to help me figure this out. And so we tried to fix it. We fled from our parents to try to fix the problem ourselves. Well, as it turned out, uh, about an hour later after I spilled it, uh, the, the first floor ceiling started to drip water. And soon, sort of, pieces of plaster began to fall down. And all of a sudden now, my sin, my original rebellion became a lot worse because I went away from the people that could have most helped me fix my problem. You see, when we try to grasp what only God can give, wisdom, that's sin. It's godlessness. And it leads to, to devastating consequences. And as we turn to Jesus and we look at how Jesus acted that same scenario out, fundamentally different, we see that Jesus was the representation of God's wisdom as the word of God. And he comes and he, he interacts with the tempter. But this time, for the sake of humanity as humanity's representative, he obeys, he fears the Lord he follows God's will. And in the process, he, he rescues humanity. He is victorious over the tempter. And he gives us a path when we are, when we are by faith uh, taken up into him through baptism. We come to be the people of wisdom that God had always intended us to be. You see, God didn't want to keep us from wisdom. He wanted us to have wisdom, but he wanted us to find that wisdom where it can only be found, and that is in a relationship with him, which is only available through faith in his son, the image of God.